Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just a show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Nathan Hager in D.C., uh, Paul Sweeney here in New York on a Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Busy day on the earnings front, particularly for the uh, the big banks. We had a mix of some of the, you know, what I kind of consider the pure investment banks like Morgan Stanley and some of the more... Uh, maybe mainstream uh, banks, commercial banks, corporate banks, City, uh, Wells Fargo. We have Allison Williams here in our studios here giving us a sense of kind of what's going down here. So it's been a really choppy year, Allison, from a capital markets perspective. That's a problem, I would think. I don't know. Um, but we have a, you know, we've got interest rates going up, and that means net interest margin. That's a good thing. So when you put it all together, what did you see so far in some of the earnings today? So uh, to your point, net interest income, very strong. In fact, um, you know, we sort of had a sense that it was going to come in better than expected, came in even better than that. And uh, banks are guiding up for the near term. But as we know, a lot of the thoughts are turning towards 2023. And um, there, it, there was higher than expected provisions related to uh, we think banks getting more conservative on the economic outlook. Um, of course, that that remains fluid. On uh, the capital market side of things, fixed income trading, the highlight of the quarter, that was expected. But again, coming in a little bit better. Equities trading weak. Fees, as we know, very, very weak. Um, but what we're seeing, in, in, in and you're seeing it in the stocks today, um, Main Street is really the business that's outperforming for this quarter. And you're seeing that lift um, for companies like Wells Fargo, even though they took a $2 billion charge related to some historical historical issues. Yeah, it raises a lot of questions about how long net interest income can stay elevated and how long the consumer can stay resilient when we are continuing to hear from Fed officials, even this morning, that interest rates are staying higher for longer. I think that is the question. Um, just in terms of things are much better this quarter. They look really good for next quarter. But for 2023, um, again, provisions are uh, rising. That really relates to the expectations for next year because the current trends actually are coming in more positive than expected. And then in terms of higher rates, 
great for the margin right now, but at what point does that start to um, more dramatically slow loan growth? And at what point do deposit costs start to rise more meaningfully, which will cut into that? It's October. And Allison, that time of year, this is just bred into me, even though I haven't worked on the street for 15 years. I'm already thinking bonus time. Mm. What are the big investment banks? What's the word on the street about, given it's been such a bad year or a tough year for the, for the markets, what's the expectation for compensation this year? So, uh, you know, last year was a huge year for fees and trading. Yep. We saw compensation um, rise accordingly. We saw coming into the year, I would say, um, very in intense pressure in terms of pay, um, but we are hearing more about lower compensation. Um, and if you look at sort of Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, their compensation is the most tied to capital markets. It looks like the declines are similar to revenue. Um, we're also going to be looking to see what banks are doing on headcount. Um, we're seeing growth in the quarter that relates to campus hires, as you know, um, tends to grow in the third quarter. Um, Morgan Stanley was just speaking on their call and said, you know, they're, they're not looking at any dramatic cuts yet, but okay. obviously these are things they're going to be looking at in the fourth quarter. I know this is something Paul Sweeney looks at real closely, so I'm going to take yep. the rug out from under him, uh, whether the workers that do stick around, depending on how headcount works out, whether they're going to be coming back into the office. So I think that, you know, we've seen uh, mixed trends. So uh, banks like J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs uh, taking a, a harder line on things and then some other banks sort of using that as a way to compete and providing more flexibility. As we know, th things remain a little bit in flux, and I, I think we're all curious to see what the backdrop starts to look like going into 2023. Um, but I would also say it's a tougher revenue environment, and my guess is when you're thinking about things like compensation cuts and staff changes, uh, people are probably going to want to be in the office uh, more often. And, you know, mm. again, hopefully on the road if you're a banker trying to get more business. Hey, Allison, on a global scale, is there, can these European banks, can they ever be competitive? I mean, really competitive. I think Deutsche Bank, I don't know, Barclays, you know, the Swiss banks, it just seems like they just, they will never have the scale unless the rules change over there in terms of cross-border M&A, that they can compete with the big banks in the U.S. Yeah, I think, and, and I think part of it is, you know, we're sort of a, a decade long now of sort of a virtuous cycle for the U.S. banks and, you know, the opposite for the Europeans. U.S. banks got issues behind them sooner. They, you know, moved past the regulatory and, re regulatory and legal issues sooner. Uh, they had a good economy. Yep. They had they had a period of higher rates before they came down and, and now coming back again. And that all allowed them to make these long-term investments. So like you're looking at JP Morgan, you know, their equity trading last last quarter was more than anybody. And that was a business that, you know, as you know, cash equities was yep. was sort of the laggard for them and, and now they're there. Whereas on the Europeans, it's it's sort of been the opposite. Um, they've struggled with revenue. They haven't had the money to invest. They've done restructuring after restructuring. Credit Suisse, we know, has some big risk management issues. Um, so it does seem like, you know, it's one of those things on paper. It would make sense for a couple of right. these to get together. Um, but there's also issues, right? Everyone yeah. wants to be the buyer. No one wants to be the seller. <laughs> exactly. Um, and it's political. It's cultural. I know. But it, it just you see how the market shares are going. You just got to say, 
boy, at some point they're just going to be competed almost out of business and made so um, almost irrelevant, but to, Crazy to see how that's evolved. All right, Allison Williams, Senior Banking Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, also Co-Director of Research for the Americas for Bloomberg Intelligence. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Think or Swim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. During the pandemic, one of our go-to voices for really scientific-based analysis of the virus, of the, you know, the treatments and of the vaccines was Sam Fazelli, uh, head of European research and pharmaceutical analyst for Bloomberg in- Intelligence. Now that we've essentially, for most people in the, in the world, have kind of put this in a rearview mirror, we can actually let him get back to doing what he does you know, best, they, which they is They did research. just extend the emergency over at the White House. Yeah, so. I saw that. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it depends on how you, you, you view it, I guess. But right. Sam, you know, there is another booster uh, out in the marketplace and I'm getting it in a couple of weeks. Um, what's your view of, I guess, these periodic boosters uh, for uh, COVID-19? Yeah, hi, Paul. So uh, the, the issue is that we've never really done this before, right? Everything about this pandemic has been clearly one of the first times that we've been through this kind of thing uh, in 100 years. So it's difficult to be 100% sure about anything. And I think that's one of the things that I think has surprised people about the science. But in this particular case, people are being asked to take a bivalent booster that's not properly fully tested in, in folks as regards its efficacy. And the thing that I've been saying all along, I'm a little bit worried, pushing this to the broad population, Let's put aside folks that are perhaps as old as me or have got some issues with their immunity, etc. Certainly for those folks. But to push it out broader, we don't even know how well it does against the current variants that are all sorts of flavors of Omicron now. I think it's got its risk that it would um, cause us even more loss of confidence in vaccines in general if it doesn't work so well. That's what I'm worried about. Well, Sam, we did just get some guidance from Pfizer just this week that the bivalent vaccine that's targeted to Omicron uh, shows strong results in uh, boosting, neutralizing antibodies. I mean, that has to count for something, doesn't it? Uh, Normally, Nathan, I would say yes. But did you see a single number in that press release? (laughs) And did we... Point taken, sure. No, No, but... And it was against the BA5 variant. What are we dealing with now in New York? B46, BQ11, oh, I don't know. B2752. See, this is what happens uh, when, like you, when you talk to these... Alphabet soup. Number soup. When you talk to these PhD types, Nathan, 
that's what happens. Well, we are all about the numbers. We that are. was a lot of numbers just now, Sam. <laughs> it's all about numbers. Data-driven research, Paul. I know. I know. That's the backbone of Bloomberg Intelligence Research, the, the data. All right. Let's talk about the stock. Um, Pfizer. I look at the FA function, which is financial analysis. I look at kind of the revenue trends. All right. So in 2020, they had $42 billion of revenue. And then, boom, it doubled in 2021 to $81 billion. And it's looking to add another 25%, uh, or I guess uh, go to about $100 billion this year in 2022 consensus. But then it drops down to like $78, $79 billion of revenue. How does the stock perform with that kind of crazy changes in revenue? And yes, it was all COVID-19 related or mostly, but how does the stock perform? How do investors look at a stock like Pfizer uh, during this COVID and post-COVID period? Yeah, I know, Paul. You know, first thing I want to say is hats off to them for really working Absolutely. so hard. Yep. And I think that to get this vaccine out there, because it has made a huge difference to the way that people are reacting to this virus. That aside, as you know, investors tend to look forward. And when you look forward, it's very difficult to know where this booster campaigns and how many more of these shots we're going to need. If you take away, you know, the COVID vaccine in 2021 had more sales than the rest of Pfizer put yep. together. So that's what I think investors are a little bit not worried about. But what's the company going to do with this massive windfall? Can it convert it into more nuggets to drive that long-term growth? And that's what everyone's hanging on to see. If you look at the stock price, you'll see that it hasn't really performed that particularly well over the past six months. And that's, that's why. Well, to some extent, Pfizer might want there to be annual boosters so they can keep getting these shots into people. That's, it, it, wouldn't that help a little bit if they, if they got a uh, annual booster campaign going? Yeah, I think even one of their competitors would like it biannually every, 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 hmm. every six months. That, the company may want that, but the question is, do people need it? I think if you think about people over the age of 60, 70, those who are not able to keep their immune system in, in ship shape uh, uh, to fight the virus, and also those who are unfortunately immunocompromised or have comorbidities, of which there are a lot of people, may require a shot every six months, every 12 months. But the broader folks over the age of 12, you know, those who are 50, 40, 30, do they really need it? And, and I think that this booster campaign is going to, potentially show us that that we, we, we are it's a difficult battle to try and stop right. infections with this vaccine. All right, Sam, let's step back a little bit. You've been covering the pharma and the biotech industries for decades. As we step away a little bit from focus on COVID, are your industries, biotech, pharma, you know, are they going, is there anything we can learn from this mRNA technology that might help with, I don't know, cancer, Alzheimer's, some of the other big issues that you know, the healthcare industries focus on? Yes. Yeah, so, Paul, only two days ago, I think, uh, Moderna had an update about a uh, deal, that deal or pact that they have with Merck of the U.S. in using mRNA as a vaccine against cancer. And yeah. the theory is great because you can try and dice, divert the immune system, push the immune system to recognize special markers on cancer cells that you're introducing using the mRNA technology. That's great. Fingers crossed it will show some strong benefits, a lot more detail needed. So at least in that front, I think you're seeing some of that. Pushing it out to neuro, neuropsychiatric diseases, etc. all of those things need to be proven. But one thing we've learned during the pandemic, science can really deliver 
if it's let uh, al- if it's left alone to do its job well. And, and I think this was exactly what we've seen with regards to um, the mRNA technology, which many people didn't believe in, but enough people did to finance it and get it to uh, help us get through this problem. Sam, you're, uh, I, n- I know you're in France. Give us just 30 seconds. How are people in France thinking about the pandemic? Is it completely in the rearview mirror, or is it still kind of front and center? Yeah, no, I mean, everybody knows it's there. We have some friends who were supposed to come and help us this weekend. We're moving house, and they both got COVID. They're sitting at home. Oh, wow. But people don't think about it like that anymore. Life is absolutely back to normal here. Yep. No, no different to New York, no different to London. Okay, people good. have moved on. All right, good stuff. Sam Fazelli. Call endemic. Uh, yes, and he's uh, he, I don't know, he lives in France. He works in London. I, occasionally, he shows up in New York. I have no idea where this guy is most of the time. Sam Fazelli. working. Exactly. <laughs> Head of European research. He's a pharmaceuticals analyst, one of the absolute best in the city of London. He's been doing it for decades, and he's been a great help to us at Bloomberg Radio and Television during this pandemic, giving us some you know, real fact-based analysis there. He's a Bloomberg intelligence, so we appreciate getting his thoughts. All right, let's break down this this big M&A trade here that, again, Bloomberg News was uh, broke a couple days ago. It's been official today. Uh, Kroger, Albertsons, nearly a $25 billion deal. Jen Bartasha, she covers this sector uh, like nobody else on Wall Street. She's a senior equity analyst uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. Hey, Jen, so we've kind of got the deal. It was, again, first reported by Bloomberg a couple days ago, now confirmed. My question is antitrust. Is this going to get approved by the regulators? Yeah, good morning, Paul. It's, it's, I think the question that's really top of mind, um, it's clear that Kroger is trying to offset that concern by the, the structure that they've announced with a spinoff company and some stores. But when you look at the actual map of coverage, it's, there, there, there are areas where there's not a lot of overlap, but there are areas where there's significant overlap. And those happen to be in big urban areas like Seattle, like Los Angeles, San Diego, uh, Texas in the Houston area. So this is where the concern comes in that the FTC, which has become increasingly critical of big of big mergers, may uh, really push back on some of this. Yeah, a lot of folks on this side of the country might not be as familiar with Albertsons, but it is big out on the West Coast where I spent a little time as a kid. So I have vague memories of it. What are the uh, struggles for Albertsons out West, Jen? Well, you know, Albertsons Albertsons has done a good job of improving their operations in the last couple of years. Um, But when you're talking about very dense markets where both Albertsons and Kroger operate, um, there's there's going to have to be, you know, some sort of solution that's that's provided to to avoid, you know, market share ending up in the hands of just too few competitors. Um, And we've seen the Biden administration take a a bigger stance on this kind of antitrust type thing with the meatpacking industry and other technology industry, things like that. So that's that's one of the concerns. Um, And so, you know, the the other thing is that there's a long timeline before this deal is meant to close, which is the beginning of 2024. There's a lot that can go wrong in such a long time frame um, that could disrupt the current operations and make the success of the merger ultimately a little bit riskier. Hey, Jen, I, I, you know, I kind of get it. Um, you know, bigger is better, scale, all that kind of stuff in a relatively low, low margin business. Give us a sense or just describe how Walmart has come into this business, the supermarket business, the food business, and how they've disrupted the business. Where is Walmart and, and can this combined co compete with Walmart? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Paul. Um, when you know, if you look at Walmart and you break down their revenue and you look at what the same goods that are sold at a grocery store versus everything a Walmart carries, a little over fifty percent of their revenue comes from what grocery market, you know, grocery stores sell. Um, so it is a big, uh, it is a big competitor on a national scale. They hold about twenty-five percent of all food retail or grocery market share. Um, so the combined entity of Kroger and Albertsons. You know, together would bring their market share up to you know about uh, just under 15 percent. So you know they can compete, and obviously scale will help them compete because they can be more competitive on pricing. They can procure goods at a lower cost, but it takes time to achieve that type of synergy. Um, and in the meantime, Walmart will not take their foot off of the accelerator. Um, and so you know, yes, it will improve their ability to compete, but. Um, they're also going to be tied up with integration efforts, um, which could delay their ability to continue to expand and remain competitive with Walmart during that time frame. It's not just Walmart. I think the last time we heard about a big grocery deal sort of like this was when Amazon purchased Whole Foods. I mean, how has the, the grocery market just more broadly shifted, uh, given all the different types of players that are in it now? It's been a huge change in the dynamic of the industry in the last couple of years. Um, and you know, with, with Amazon you know, purchase of Whole Foods, which is probably the most recent larger transaction out there, um, you know, it really shook the industry up, especially from a technology perspective and a digital um, ordering type of, of perspective. Um, when you're looking at the traditional supermarket players, however, it's been a, a story about industry consolidation. Uh, and we've seen smaller players go out of business or be scooped up. Um, and so the, the, what we're seeing in the industry now is we're, we're having scale-driven players, um, making it increasingly difficult for smaller regional players or local players to remain successful and competitive. Um, and that, that then also is, is kind of that long-term trend that we expect to see continue with regards to that, that consolidation. Um, and there are new pressures of having, you know, be more technologically savvy and to create, you know, higher revenue stream, uh, you know, higher margin revenue streams for these businesses as well. So there are a lot of balls to juggle for, for these retailers at the moment. All right, Jen, thanks so much uh, for joining us. You are the expert. So we had to get you on to kind of talk about this deal. Big deal, $25 billion, uh, bankers getting paid, which is the first thing I look at. New competitor yeah. potentially. <laughs> For the Walmarts of the world in the supermarket space, I'm still waiting for Piggly Wiggly to come to New Jersey, but we'll see. Jennifer Bartash, Senior Equity <laughs> Research Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, joins us there. And again, um, consolidation uh, in the supermarket business. And as Nathan was talking about, I mean, what, yeah. you know, I got Amazon coming in with Whole Foods years ago, really changed the landscape as well. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. 
For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We had some retail sales this morning. I don't know. The headline, flat, mm-hmm. uh, month to month. That's a little bit weaker than the prior month, so that's not great. The control group, however, came in a little bit better than expected and better than last month. So let's call it mixed, I guess, but uh, I don't know. What do I know? Mari Shore, she knows what's going on. She's a senior equity analyst at Columbia Threadneedle Investments. Before that, she was with some little shop downtown, Goldman Sachs, University of Pennsylvania. So she's... Uh, knows what she's talking about here. Mari, what did you take away from some of the retail sales data we, we saw this morning? How's the consumer doing? Well, thanks so much for having me. My reaction this morning was very similar to yours, more mixed. I would say two key takeaways for me. Number one, the flat month-over-month read um, really implies negative real or unit demand, given what we've seen with inflation. And that is very concerning, especially at a time when the companies have all really relied on pricing to drive sales. And with building inventories, it seems like pricing may be less of a lever going forward. So the, what happens with the unit demand will be even more key to watch. And then the other key takeaway would really just be the shift towards necessities. We saw categories like food, health and personal care, and general merchandise accelerate slightly month over month, while other discretionary categories saw a slowdown. And for me, the real ones I was watching were furniture and consumer electronics um, that saw the greatest deceleration month over month. And I think that, you know, those categories remain um, at risk heading into the holiday, given building inventory and still slowing demand following following two very strong years. So are you starting then to see cracks in the resiliency that a lot of these bank CEOs you've been hearing from are saying that they still see in the consumer? Yeah, it's such a great question. We've been talking about this internally. You know, the macro is more important than ever, but yet there seems to be an even greater discrepancy between the macro and the micro in some cases. Um, And what I I think we absolutely have seen cracks, especially for some of the categories that were strongest over the past few years, like home, consumer electronics, even apparel. Um, given the building inventory and, as I said, weakening pricing power, which has really been the key driver of sales over the past two years. Um, And I think that that risk continues as we head into holiday and next year. You know, a lot of the retailers are talking about bringing inventory more in line with sales as we enter the holiday. But, you know, given what we're seeing on a high level in the macro data, looking at inventory levels relative to sales, um, there's still a pretty wide and unfavorable gap there. So it really does kind of call into question what, as you said, some of these large bank CEOs are saying in general about the consumer. I mean, as we saw in the retail sales, 
they're still okay. It's not that they're falling off a cliff, which would suggest that the consumer is still healthy overall. I think we're just seeing, you know, a greater variance in terms of how the consumer is spending their money, of course, spending more on necessities, right. as we've seen, you know, increases in prices of food and energy and gas you know, and spending less on some of these discretionary categories where they've really stocked up already over the past two years. Hey, Mari, how, how promotional are retailers going to be this holiday season? Am I going to get some deals when I go to the store? You've already been putting some Absolutely. out there, Absolutely. Right? I yeah. think you, you should definitely expect to see deals better than last year. And the truth is, throughout this entire year, given that inventory was heavy, Entering this year, we have seen promotions rising in categories, again, like home and apparel. I think that continues through the holiday. You saw some retailers, including Amazon, trying to pull forward promotional events into October. I don't think that that works very well, given that, number one, the companies have been promotional. So I don't think that, you know, the, the marginal return on the increase uh, on the incremental promotion is there. And the narrative in the media is that inventory is heavy. So I think consumers are going to be more willing to wait for the deal. And the longer they wait, the more nervous retailers get. And so I think you can definitely expect to see higher promotions than you have over the past year or two. However, relative to pre-pandemic levels, I think that the retailers will still be net less promotional. All right, Mari, sure. Thank you so much for joining us, giving us that rundown. Again, we had retail sales today, kind of a mixed picture, but as we head into that all-important holiday season, Mari Shore, Senior Equity Analyst at Columbia Threadneedle, uh, giving us uh, her thoughts here. Promotions, maybe get some promotions there, yeah. uh, Nathan, as you go out and do your holiday well, it shopping. it feels like Black Friday's turned into Black October, yeah, right, exactly. when you have all these early deals coming in. And the question is, you know, is stuff going to be on the shelf when you do go there, when you do click buy? That'll be interesting as yeah. well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.